This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 39 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I am going to have a discussion about ableism, and I'm going to talk about what it is and what you need to know about it when it comes to supporting kids. So this will be relevant to you if you are a clinician, an educator, a parent, or some other type of caregiver for a child, whether they have some specific diagnosis or disability, or even if they don't have a specific diagnosis, and you've noticed that they need to work on some specific skills, and you want to figure out how to be supportive of them. I'll give some specific examples when it comes to things like ADHD, autism, and dyslexia, just to give you some context, but just know that this could apply to other populations as well. Before I get going in this episode, I mention throughout this discussion today that it's so important that we teach kids skills so that we can not only have an understanding of their behaviors, but also so that we provide the supports that they need in order to be more resilient and more self-sufficient over time so that they can be independent with all the things that they need to do day to day, such as 
keeping their schoolwork together, such as managing their things, or even just understanding how long things take around the house. That is something that is a very important executive functioning skill, the ability to understand the passage of time and to be able to understand how long those day-to-day things that we have to do that we might not always necessarily enjoy doing, to be able to understand how long those things take. However, some kids don't necessarily have the ability to sense how long things take and to go through their day-to-day tasks in a strategic way, which means that you as a parent have a lot of work when it comes to making sure that they get all of their things done. So what you need is a strategy that's going to make kids over time more independent and less dependent on you structuring their day and their tasks for them. So that's why I've created the Time Tracking Journal What this time tracking journal is, is a set of strategies that will help you to teach your kids the skills that they need to, number one, develop the self-talk that they need to plan their day-to-day activities, and also help them to sense time more effectively so that when you have little things that need to be done throughout the day, they can start to estimate how long things will take so that they can start to be more independent with just getting themselves ready. This could be things like the bedtime routine, getting ready for school in the morning, getting a meal together. All of those things take time. And if your child doesn't have the ability to sense how long things will take and understand the steps needed to complete those different day-to-day activities, it can make it really hard to get through the day. So that's why I've created the Time Tracking Journal to show you how to support your kids through those day-to-day tasks that require executive functioning. So to grab that Time Tracking Journal, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal, and you'll be able to sign up for the journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Let's start out by defining what it actually is. So it's pretty self-explanatory. Ableism is discrimination in favor of able-bodied people. So it's some type of discrimination against people with disabilities. And the reason that it has come up when it comes to things like ADHD and autism is because We now know that there are certain behaviors and characteristics, and I'll use ADHD for example, there are certain things that people with ADHD may need to do or they may need certain accommodations based on how they want to arrange their environment or they may have a particular way of doing things that may look different than what neurotypicals do because of how they, for example, might respond to different distractions in their environment because of their sensory systems or even just their work habits. They might benefit from things being structured in a certain way and they might be more sensitive to changes in environment or structure compared to someone who's neurotypical. For example, my husband who 
doesn't officially have a diagnosis, but possibly has ADHD, he needs to structure his morning in a certain way, or he knows that he won't be able to get things done. So he knows that if he doesn't just get up and start work right away, then what happens is that he gets distracted, and then he tends to kind of avoid and procrastinate because he has a hard time putting down whatever it is, whatever the distraction is. So he needs to get going right away. I, on the other hand, like to start my day a little bit more slowly and ease into it, and I can sleep a little bit longer. I actually feel that I need to sleep a little bit longer and ease into things rather than going from zero to 60, and so we work a little bit differently. So if I were to look at his morning routine that is very structured and he does it that way because he knows exactly how his brain works and he knows what he needs to do in order to be successful, if I were to look at that and judge him and say, oh, you're just, you know, if you can't put down those distractions because you're just being lazy. And me making that assumption about the way that his brain works and thinking less of him because of me needing things a little bit different than what he needs or or because he needs certain routines in place in order to be successful, well, that would be somewhat ableist of me because I am thinking less of him based on something that could be related to ADHD. Initiation. So being able to initiate an activity is one of the executive functioning skills that can be impacted by ADHD. So being able to initiate a task means, one, you can figure out how to start doing that task. So part of it is being able to plan and understand the steps that you need to take in order to start a task. But the other thing that's involved in being able to start a task is to be able to stop what you're currently doing. And if you're doing something that is enjoyable or easy or pleasurable in some way, it is a skill to be able to refrain from doing that activity in the interest of doing something productive. And possibly doing something productive so that you can continue engaging in pleasurable activities throughout the future. Obviously, if you never get your work done, you're not going to be able to do things that you enjoy. So that is one of the executive functioning skills. So if if I were, again, he... My husband is is very well aware of that pattern that he has, and he knows exactly what he needs to do. Part of it is he doesn't start doing those activities that he enjoys or that are kind of more relaxing distraction type of activities because he he knows his tendency and he knows that if he has a lot of work to get done, it's best for him to just get started on it and just avoid those things that are too tempting to put down. This is actually very common when we see, you know, kids who like to play video games for a really long time. It's very hard to put some of those things down. So, Again, assuming that it's just laziness and defiance, that is kind of ableist, but looking at it and understanding that it is a skill that can be worked through is a better way of looking at it. It doesn't mean that we allow someone to engage in a behavior that is somehow self-destructive. Obviously, if you have someone who is always avoiding the work that they need to do in order to you know, do the things that are important to them, whether it be schoolwork or whether it be an adult that needs to get work done around their house so that they can do the things that they're responsible for, obviously, you know, it doesn't mean that we avoid those types of things. We still want to help people to be accountable 
but we want to do it from a place of compassion and not assuming that they're just less than in some way because they are engaging in this certain behavior. So for example, instead of if if I were to notice, you know, that my husband was not getting stuff done, I might say something like, okay, how can we structure the day? How can we minimize distractions so that you can get your work done? So I, I would hold him accountable, but at the same time, I wouldn't, you know, come at him and say nasty things to him and call him names and call him lazy and stupid and all kinds of crazy things, which, of course, most people who are wanting to support their kids would not do something as extreme as that. But again, I'm giving extreme examples here, but we do have a tendency to make assumptions about people based on their behavior. And when you have things that are neurological in nature, it is sometimes hard to see the origin. So the best way to avoid being ableist in that situation is to see it as a skill and as a behavior, not necessarily as a personality quality, especially if you know it is a skill that that person just hasn't developed yet. And thankfully, Like I said, my husband is really good about understanding how to structure his environment. So we don't have that issue. And we do have that understanding. We both know that we're wired very differently and need our routines to be different. And the way that we avoid being ableist to each other is respecting those differences and allowing each other to be able to advocate for what we need within the relationship. With this example specifically, with the whole initiation and being able to put down an activity that's pleasurable, here is where, especially with parents, let's say you're working with your child on getting the homework done after school or or whatever it is, whatever routines they have to do at the end of the day when they come home from school that might not be their favorite thing to do. I really encourage parents to experiment with their routines here because a lot of times people assume, oh, well, I should give them a break because they're tired when they get home from school. And that might be the case. That might be what works for your child. But I would encourage you to set some clear boundaries around how that looks. For example, I'm a big fan of setting timers because what that does is, especially if you are using an analog clock instead of a digital clock, it helps to point out the passage of time to your kids so that they can start to be able to sense time and how long things take because that is a really important skill for them to have. And if they are going to take a break, have a clear boundary of, okay, here's how long we have to have your snack and take a break and do whatever they're going to do after school so that they know when the end of that time is. And it's really important to be consistent with with whatever you said. So if they get a break and then they need to come home and do something that isn't one of their favorite activities to do, it's important to allow them to see that there are clear boundaries there because what that shows is that there's consistency. So for example, if you sometimes say, okay, we get a 30-minute break, and then sometimes the break is 20 minutes, and sometimes it's 
it gets to go longer, then there's always that element of, well, maybe I can negotiate my way around this. Understanding that there is a clear structure can allow kids to know what to expect. And this isn't from a form of trying to rigidly control your kid's day. It's more from an element of just modeling how they can structure their day so that they're able to get things done. Because eventually when they get older, they are going to need to understand how to manage their time. And always another way to handle it is to do a very, very short break such as just five to 10 minutes and get started on the less pleasant work right away and just get it done and show them how long it takes. So maybe set a timer for how long that task is going to take and show them, you know what, it only takes 20 minutes. It's not really that long. And then look at all this other time that you get in order to to do all of the things that you enjoy. And The powerful thing about that is that if they can see that if they just sit down and start their work, what that shows them is that they start to learn how long those tasks take. And then they start to learn that if I get this done, that actually provides me more freedom to do those other things that I enjoy. And so that can teach them a very important lesson as well in time management because that is something that is true about the way the world works. If we get our responsibilities done, then we do have time for those things that we enjoy. But if we are procrastinating and avoiding our responsibilities, then sometimes we create a situation for ourselves where we don't get to have as many things as we enjoy. So For example, if you are living by yourself, the reason that you're able to afford to pay your bills and have things in your apartment like your TV or whatever it is, is because you are going to work and meeting all of your responsibilities. So these are some things that as kids are growing, as they are doing their schoolwork as they're doing their other chores and things around the house. You can tie some connections to those things coming forward as an adult. And when you're doing it from a standpoint of teaching them skills rather than just punishing or rewarding for good behaviors, that's how you can avoid being ableist. If it's just, oh, you're you know, you're refusing to do your work, you're going to get a punishment, and I'm not going to teach you the skill in order to help you to do whatever, whatever that task is, well, then that can be ableist, because we are making an assumption about them based on a skill that they don't have. And we're thinking less of them, because of something that might have to do with just a neurological difference that they have. But if we are teaching them the skill, what that is showing them is, you know what, because I am showing you how to do this, that means that I think that you are capable. So honestly, it sometimes sounds a little bit backwards when we are just slightly, and again, not to the point of making things traumatic, but when we are encouraging kids to do things that are a little bit out of their comfort zone, that is actually the opposite of ableism because what it's saying is, I think that you can do this and I am going to trust that you have the ability to learn this skill and that's why I'm going to provide this scaffolding and support and these opportunities to allow you to learn this skill. Now, a lot of times 
people want to make sure that they're not being ableist during that process. And while they're teaching people to do different skills, the thing that I have said a lot of times is that we don't want to just force neurodivergence into a neurotypical box. And I wanted to just give a couple examples of how to navigate that situation because it is kind of, there's some gray area there. So I wanted to just give you some thought processes to be able to navigate those situations. And the main thing is, and you know that I am very much about giving people ways of thinking about things rather than telling them the answer. I'm very much more about giving people frameworks and strategies rather than just saying, this is the right way to do things because it's never going to always be the right way to do things because you need context. I wanted to give an example that I thought was just ridiculous. Um, (laughs) So on social media, I was in one group, I think it was special education teachers. And this parent shared that one of her child's teachers said, you all are in fifth grade now. Just stop writing down your assignments. You should just be able to remember your assignments. Now, I would say that that statement is extremely ableist. It's just... It's just ridiculous, to be honest, because number one, it assumes that people have the working memory to be able to hold all of that information in their head and be able to remember all of the details of their assignments throughout the day. And that is just not true, because sometimes people, some people might be able to just remember a lot of information that's presented verbally and be able to hold that in their mind. An example is whenever you go to a restaurant and you can tell that you have a a server who's been working there for a while because they're not writing anything down and then they always get your order right. I used to wait tables and I could never do that. I had to write everything down. And even then, sometimes I screwed things up. So telling someone in a situation like that, when they just know I am not going to be able to retain all of this information, I need some kind of a strategy to be able to retain this. Again, that's ableist because you're making an assumption. You're you're thinking less of them because they need to use a strategy. And that strategy is not causing any issues to anybody else. It's not bothering anyone. And it's actually making the situation better for everyone. So in the situation with that teacher, I, I just thought that was silly because being able to write your assignments down and use a cognitive strategy that most people probably need to use to some extent. Maybe some people have just this amazing ability to remember things without writing them down, but a lot of people will need to write things down, especially assignments, to be able to recall what exactly they're supposed to do. So Telling someone not to use a strategy and then looking down on them when they use that strategy or technique or accommodation is extremely ableist. So I would definitely discourage that. If someone has figured out a strategy that is working for them, it's not bothering anyone else, maybe it looks a little bit different than what other people are doing. Maybe they are more dependent on said strategy than others. Maybe some people might be able to remember some of their assignments if they don't write them down, but they just prefer to write them down. But others might need to write those things down. Otherwise, they're just not going to remember. So assuming less of them because they have to do that, 
Again, that's not something we want to do. We always want to be open to trying different accommodations and strategies and figuring out what works for people, even if it's something that seems above and beyond what people would normally do, or even if it seems like something that is less common. Let me give you another example that I am personally guilty of judging people when they make grammatical errors or spelling errors. Language and literacy is my area of expertise. So I certainly notice things like this, and I have certainly been guilty of passing judgment on people because of spelling errors, for example. However, dyslexic people can make spelling errors and still be really intelligent. In fact, that is very common. So assuming less of someone because they make a spelling error or a grammatical error, there are a lot of reasons why someone might make an error like that that doesn't have to do with them being less of a person. In fact, the majority of reasons why they would make a mistake like that don't mean that at all. And oftentimes, kids uh, who are dyslexic might needs certain accommodations at school, such as tests being read, obviously not the reading test, but things like math tests, science tests, so that they can show their knowledge of the content. Or maybe they might use things like screen readers or other different accommodations. And again, denying them those supports is ableist because you're discriminating against them. You're denying them something that they need in order to access the curriculum or do an activity effectively based on their disability. On the other hand, teaching them a skill such as how to use said strategies or teaching them to be better readers, for example, teaching them the skills that they need in order to be able to effectively decode or to improve their ability to decode what they're reading and write and things like that. I would argue that those things are not ableist because number one, you're operating with the assumption that they have the capacity to improve. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're expecting them to progress at the same rate or in the same manner as somebody who is not dyslexic, nor does it assume that whatever you're seeing as far as progress is a direct reflection of how successful that person can be. Because again, as I said, there are things that teach specific skills like reading, and then there are the things that teach specific skills like accommodation, for example. So again, teaching the skills if they are tied to things that are going to support that person and align with their goals, obviously that is not ableist. Taking away the accommodations and assuming that they're less intelligent because they can't fit into the, quote, normal standards, that obviously would be problematic. Finally, I wanted to give an example about social skills training. So this is something that is often done for autistic people, for example, who are unsure how to take the perspective of others or who aren't sure how to navigate different social situations or relationships. And the same thing with people with ADHD as well, because 
keeping in mind that social skills and being able to understand and interpret social situations, there is executive functioning involved in that because you have to read the room, you have to read signals, you have to process a lot of information at once. So that in itself is an executive function. So that's definitely something that is is done as far as a service that is available for people who need it. This is one area where, in my opinion, it gets a little bit more confusing to be able to tell if you are being ableist or if you are being supportive. And as I have said in the past couple episodes, it really does depend on the person and the context. So I can't necessarily give you a a one-size-fits-all answer here. But what I can share is a way for you to reflect on your own behavior as you support whoever it is in your life that you're supporting, whether it is your own child or whether it is your students or your clients. And the number one question that I always go back to when I am mentoring people or when I am reflecting on my own behavior is, what is important to this person? What are their goals? And how do I help them reach those goals? When it's about the person, when you make it about what's important to them, then that can help to safeguard you against doing something that they might look back on later, you know, as an adult and think, oh, wow, that was that was something that was forced on me that I didn't want. So when it's about them, and when you are thinking about their wants and needs, and what is going to serve them in the long run, both behaviorally, emotionally, and academically, and all of the things, then then that really does help to prevent you from making your client or your child feel like you're gaslighting them. (laughs) My biggest criticism of social skills training, and I'm using air quote fingers as I say that, is that a lot of the training and materials out there are just telling people what to do. They're kind of giving the fish instead of teaching someone to fish. So they're just telling someone, in this situation, you do this. Do this, not that. This is what you're supposed to do when you talk to your friends. This is how you're supposed to talk to your friends. And it's not really teaching any problem-solving skills and critical thinking skills, because if you are going to be successful socially, you do have to be able to read the situation. And if you're just telling people, this is the script that you're supposed to say, and this is the list of behaviors that you're supposed to do, and you don't have a means for analyzing that context and reading the situation, then it's going to be really hard to know when to apply those skills. And so that's why with traditional social skills training, what happens is that kids can tell you exactly what they're supposed to do. They can just repeat back, these are the rules, these are what are what I'm supposed to do when I talk to my friends or when I sit at lunch or when I am at recess, but then we don't ever see them applying those specific skills or doing those things that they said they thought they were supposed to do because they don't have context. And so it's more effective when we give them a tool for 
analyzing the situation and essentially reading the room and reading the situation rather than just giving them a set of scripts, which is what has been done in the past and is not only not effective, but it also just can be for some people kind of traumatic because it's just really setting them up for failure because it's not really giving them what they need to be successful. To give a little bit of context, I can think of one particular instance where I was having a conversation with a colleague who was working with a group of high school students who wanted to have more friends. This this whole group of them wanted to be able to develop some friendships, and some of them had autism. Um, some of them had some other diagnoses. I'm not exactly sure what the whole makeup of the group was, but there were definitely some students who not only other people thought needed to be working on social skills, but also had identified in themselves that they wanted to work on those things. So how we talked through handling that was instead of just doing kind of a, this is how you're supposed to make a friend at lunch, we had them just talk through certain situations that were coming up for them. So for example, one student would just monologue and and just talk about one topic of interest and the other kids were getting annoyed or they were losing interest and they would just walk away. And so the therapist talked through that situation with the student and the student decided on their own, well, you know what, when I was, I was talking about, you know, whatever the topic was, or I was doing, doing X behavior, I noticed that this other this other kid in the class just walked away, or I noticed that some other people were telling me to stop, or they were seeming annoyed. So maybe I should stop doing that. Maybe I should do something else in that situation. So there was a specific situation, and they decided, you know what, I was looking around, and I was seeing that other people were were not liking it. And I think that that maybe in that situation, I could have started a conversation with a friend, or maybe we could have decided to sit together at lunch or something that was specific to the context. That particular student decided, well, in that moment, I think there are some other things that I could do when that situation comes up again, that I'm going to try. So it was context dependent, it wasn't just scripted. And the student also was able to look at the behaviors of people around them, think about some possible interpretations of what they might mean, and then also decide how they wanted to act. So it wasn't being imposed on them by the therapist. The therapist was having the conversation with them and facilitating, but wasn't telling them the answers. So in that particular case, it's going to be way more likely that there is a change in behavior because that student was able to identify that in that moment that they could have chosen to act a little bit different in order to get a different result and get a different response from people. So it's not ableist to be telling people, if you behave in a certain way, this is how some people might perceive it based on cultural expectations, based on this environment. If you are just simply explaining the way a situation works and how they might be perceived, what you're doing is you're helping them read that situation. You're not necessarily trying to control them or tell them you have to act this way. 
or you have to act this other way. You're simply helping them problem solve and come to a decision about how they could act in that situation. And and this is a good example of where you might want to talk about the pros and cons of doing one thing versus the other, different options, how their behaviors might be coming across. All of these things can be useful. And again, they're more from the standpoint of being empowering rather than telling someone this is the way it has to be. So again, it's about reading the situation, giving options, helping people have an understanding of the situation rather than just telling them some script that they have to do because, again, this is the way we do things around here or or something like that. So before we wrap up, I wanted to just, again, review what we're talking about here. We're just considering the topic of ableism, again, discriminating against people who are disabled in some way, whether it be a physical disability or whether it be some kind of neurological condition. The obvious things to avoid would be withholding certain accommodations or environmental modifications or gaslighting someone when they try to advocate for themselves and ask for what they need and act like they are being ridiculous or something like that. Obviously, we want to be understanding. And when we see certain behaviors in kids, understand the meaning behind those behaviors and not make assumptions about their intentions, because many times those behaviors could be due to some kind of a skill-based issue that doesn't necessarily mean that they're less intelligent or less motivated or willing to do said task. In many instances, it just means that they don't have certain skills in place, such as the ability to self-monitor, self-regulate, understand how to modify their environment so that they're able to put down a desirable activity for something that is less desirable in all the examples that I've given today. So we want to understand what the behaviors mean. That's obviously the first step in avoiding being ableist. And we want to avoid making those assumptions. And when somebody advocates for themselves and asks you for some kind of a reasonable accommodation that doesn't cause any harm or causes a very minimal inconvenience to you or other people around them, obviously, we want to allow them to do it, especially if it's something that is going to allow them to access a certain activity that they wouldn't normally be able to access. The most obvious example would be is that it would be silly to tell somebody in a wheelchair that they couldn't have access to a ramp, for example. Now, with neurological conditions, sometimes that's a little bit harder to understand because we can't see them, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. But on the other hand, we do still want to teach kids to be accountable. Just because a particular child, for example, hasn't learned the skill of persisting through a challenging task and might show some resistance to doing that task doesn't mean that we don't strategically increase their tolerance to that task and encourage them to get out of their comfort zone in an environment that is safe and supportive. So again, just because 
a child might not want to do their homework or their chores or do whatever it is doesn't mean that we don't encourage them and hold them accountable for doing the things that are important for them for their development and developing certain skills. Because over time, what that's going to do is enable them to develop skills that are going to make life much easier for them once they work through that difficult initial learning stage that does have the potential to make them stronger and more resilient over time, which means that task doesn't need to be as difficult as it used to. So that is something that we want to encourage in kids. And of course, we want to do all of this with compassion and understand that there's going to be gradual progress over time. If you have a family who has a really hard time keeping the house clean, maybe you don't try to have a perfect clean house next week. Maybe you just try to clear off the kitchen table, and that's the thing that you're responsible for this week. And then maybe you continually add to that list of responsibilities over time. So we want to make sure that we are meeting kids where they're at, but at the same time, encouraging them to get better and better over time. going to wrap up here, but just know that this is probably not the first episode that I will do covering this topic because I didn't even come close to sharing all the things that I wanted to share. And I'm sure I'll have some questions and feedback and all sorts of comments that I'll be able to follow up on. So just know that there is more to come on this topic coming up in the future. Before I wrap up, I wanted to share again, don't forget to check out the time tracking journal. I talked all throughout this episode about the importance of teaching strategies and giving kids a way to problem solve through all of the different things that they encounter, whether it be just day-to-day tasks where they might need to use executive functioning skills or even social situations where they might need to figure out, okay, what's going on here? And how am I interpreting this situation? And how should I act in this situation in order to be able to build the relationships that I want or achieve the goals that I want to achieve? So all of those things require executive functioning. Any type of day-to-day task that your child engages in requires some type of strategic thinking and requires some ability to process the passage of time and understand how long things will take. And if your child does not necessarily have those skills yet developed, then what you're going to see are things like procrastination, not wanting to put down an activity that they enjoy for something that might be something that's less enjoyable, for example, like I talked a lot about today. And you need a specific strategy to help support them through that situation so that you can hold them accountable, yet at the same time provide a safe, supportive space for them. So that is exactly why I've created tools like the Time Tracking Journal that gives parents and clinicians a set of strategies that they can use to help kids develop the executive functioning skills that they need for simple day-to-day tasks that require multiple steps 
and also to help them engage in healthy self-talk in the process that builds their self-esteem and also helps them to strategically evaluate their own success with said task and, and also to figure out how they can improve in the future. So to grab the time tracking journal, all you need to do is go to drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash time journal, and you'll be able to get access. I've had some people ask questions about the journal because it is a physical journal that outlines some steps that you can take. And I've had some people say, I really like what you're saying here, and I like the strategy, but I'm not sure that my child will want to fill out a journal. Well, that is totally fine. I've structured it in a journal so that it is packaged for parents, caregivers, and clinicians in a way that's easy to follow, but it's not necessarily something that you have to fill out with your kids. It's simply a process that you can go through to help support kids through any of those tasks that they're doing day to day that require multiple steps, whether it be getting ready in the morning, whether it be cleaning their room, whether it be doing a specific homework assignment. So all I'm doing is that I am outlining some strategies that you can use to support your child in a journal format. The journal is simply the mode that I'm using to transfer the strategies to you and make them feasible so that you can easily work them into your day-to-day routines. So again, to check out the time tracking journal, just go to drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash time journal. For now, we'll wrap up. Remember that it helps us so much if you rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether it be Apple, Spotify, or some other directory that really helps us out to get the word out about this show and get this into the ears of people who need it. And of course, if you found this episode useful, feel free to share it with your friends and your colleagues. For now, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in episode 40. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. 
There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.